Welcome to this week's edition of the CTSnet Beat. Uh, in this edition, we've got aortic valve repair versus AVR, double outlet right ventricle, and what would a thoracic surgeon have as an operation if he had a small tumour? Uh, we've got some great interviews, uh, including Sherry Erkman about gender disparities and some really cool videos, frozen on elephant trunks and carinal resections. And the issue of the week is, uh, is the peer review system completely broken? It sends me mad. Do you hate sending articles in to just get them bounced all over the place is it broken is it time for a change could we improve it uh, listen to the whole full cts beat podcast and i will give you my views on what we can do about that so it's really packed uh, lots and lots of things going on on ctsnet uh, check out the website and check out the full podcast for all the details Hello, my name is Joel Dunning. I give you all the best news and views uh, every single week in the world of cardiothoracic surgery. And new for this year, we're going to do issue of the week. So we've got lots of uh, three brilliant articles, three great videos. We've got some uh, interesting things going on. But first, I want to talk about uh, peer review system. Have you ever sent a paper into a journal and has it sent you crazy? You wait months for the reviews to come back, you get two, three, four reviews, and they all seem to say completely different things. One loves your article, one hates your article. What are you going to do? You send your your revised edition back in, it gets bounced again. Oh my God, four months later, it gets rejected and you start all over again with another journal, which gives a completely different set of views and opinions. So is it broken? So interestingly, um, the deputy editor of JAMA said if peer review was a drug, it would never be allowed onto the market. Uh, the reason uh, she said that was that uh, there was no convincing evidence of benefit and lots of evidence of its flaws. Uh, JAMA then did a series of clever tests on its peer reviewers. Uh, it uh, took an accepted article that had got into JAMA. It then put uh, 12 mistakes into it, sent it back to its reviewers. Uh, the average number of mistakes found out of the 12 were 2 and 20% found no uh, mistakes at all. They then did another little, uh, a little test on their reviewers. They sent 12 papers out that had been accepted. They changed the authors and institutions from famous authors and famous institutions to fixed fictitious made up ones and eight of those 12 papers were then rejected because they didn't have famous authors so there's lots of flaws and I'm sure if I got you to tell me about your experiences it would send you crazy I myself have an article that's now five months in the review process got four reviews all wildly differing opinions and you feel this huge pressure to change your article massively based uh, on what these individual people say say. But what are the alternatives? Um, my history of uh, peer review is that uh, in 2003, I set up a system called Best Evidence Topics in the ICVTS, where we created a structured literature review system where you use checklists to go through papers and tick off things that they do well and badly. Uh, and, uh, and then for six years, I was the uh, cardiac editor of the EJCTS, uh, where I had personal account of reading these reviews that were diametrically 
opposite from each other. Now, some reviewers, to be totally fair, are amazing. Uh, they're great. They write giant reviews, really detailed. They spot everything. But others, literally, I disagree with his article. I do not recommend it for publication. Two lines. That's it. Um, and so what do you do with these? Um, Irina Rendina and Gonzalo Varela uh, with the European Journal did a study of concordance uh, of reviewers. And 20% of the time, reviewers op said the opposite from each other. So it really is difficult. Um, one other thing that really knocks me is if you are a reviewer, you don't get any accolade for this. You get absolutely nothing. You don't get put on the paper. You know, you can't write to your institution to say how hard you'd work. You know, we don't give reviewers the, the accolades uh, and thanks that, you know, they deserve for quite a hard job. Um, also, uh, we actually wrote an article for the European Journal, How to Review a Paper. And I think this article actually helped us get to the nub of what we should be doing differently. So here is my prescription of what we should do different. Firstly, speed. We need to get through the pit review system much, much quicker. Months and months waiting for your article to go through the system is a disaster. You know, the internet now should be really, really quick. Number two, reviewers should use checklists and be trained to do reviews. It is a skill. I was a systematic reviewer for NICE for six months. I was trained in how to do systematic review before that. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what made a good paper or a bad paper. So we should train them. Now, if you want to make your reviewers quicker and cleverer, then you need to pay them or, or in some way benefit them because at the moment it's all a big favour. Now for that matter, we're all writing all our articles and giving them to journals completely for free and they're making profits from the uh, publications and adverts, which you know is a whole nother thing. But, but actually to have reviewers uh, working completely for free um, without any investment in their training, you know, I just think is actually wrong. So if I had a magic wand, what would I do? Well, A, for the standard journals, maybe I would uh, reimburse uh, reviewers or I would uh, put them on the publication, reviewed by. So maybe they were a sort of co-author. I mean, they put a lot of work into this. So then you could list your reviewerships as well as your authorships. I think it has to be as important as the uh, authors, the reviewers. And But they do have to do as good a job as well. So we train them. Uh, we'll check their reviews, uh, will metric them and actually let's make them as important as some of the authors. Now some of the papers, you know, you've got 12 authors on them. You know, I bet a couple of them didn't do very much work, did they? So actually I think reviewers do as much or sometimes more uh, work as the fourth and fifth author perhaps. So, so let's put reviewers uh, in the uh, co-authorship line or create a new line that says reviewed by. So let's put them up in lights. Um, now, it still is frustrating. Now, I would say also, you know, for big, big journals, New England Journal of Medicine, you know, the real big one circulation, all reviewing the giant articles of our time, the randomised trials, the, the JCOGs, the, the huge UK, UK mini mitral, big studies. Yep, they are going well. But for us, little people just trying to get published uh, interesting case reports or small cohort studies, you know, maybe we need to smash the system to pieces as well. Um, one art journal I really like is BMJ Open. Uh, they take your article, they just publish it with no peer review, uh, and then they ask people to write reviews below it. Um, and actually, this is not so dissimilar uh, to publishing on CTS now. We don't mind receiving articles. Uh, we just post them up, and then why not just have people 
publish what is kind of a review as a response uh, below and let the public decide how good or bad that article is. Uh, typings and spelling mistakes we can get fixed in the editorial office, but why not just post, thing on, post things on the internet uh, and get people to review like the BMJ Open. Now, what you'll be shouting at the screen is, my institution can't recognise my academic prowess because of that, because they only add up the impact factor. Uh, and that hits the nail on the head. The, the, the thing the journals have that everything else doesn't have is the thing called the impact factor. Because if you don't have that, you can't show your institution. Well, there are other measures out there. Altmetrics is something we use on, on CTSnet. And it's now a big global, quite well-recognized metric of how much notice your article has got. If you publish your article, let's say on CTSnet or on BMJ Open, uh, what is the measure of how good your article is? Well, uh, Altmetric will say how many hits it's had on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter uh, and how much interest and traffic it's generated. And I think, is that a worse measure than a it getting into a journal? Well, I think there is quite a, a big hierarchy of journals, isn't there? We all know getting in the New England Journal is better uh, than getting in a smaller journal and that we know that the European Journal, JTCVS and Annals are fantastic journals and ICVTS and MMCTS are, are one level down. Uh, so there is a big hierarchy, but I think if Altmetrics uh, comes forward, we might be able to enter a world where you can just send your article to something like, I don't mind where, but CTSnet, YouTube, uh, your own website, and let's use Altmetrics uh, to measure it and, subs and put it on our CVs. Because actually, what do we want by an article? We want to be noticed, we want other people to see it, and we want to show our institutions that we work hard. So I think it is time for a change. I think it's time to smash apart the uh, model, especially for the smaller papers, uh, the ones that we just want to get noticed quickly. I think our, our, our specialty uh, societies could help with this. Uh, and I think if we all talk with one voice uh, to say we all want uh, to use out metrics or other measures of how much my article gets noticed then I think we would get there. So that is my topic of the week. Maybe you're calling it my rant of the week but uh, I certainly get frustrated by the current peer review system and I think we need to change it and change our mindset uh, and look far more kindly on open peer review systems, on publishing, on really well-respected websites like CTSnet, the SDS, EJCTS, etc. Uh, and or even on YouTube where we'll get videos of people describing their work out and get that recognised with something like Outmetrics. Anyway, let's move on. Just in case you disagree completely with me, we've got some good articles for you on CTSNet this week. Um, the first one is aortic valve repair results in better one-year survival than replacement. Uh, this is an article from the German aortic valve registry. Some of you may have heard of Gary, the German aortic valve registry. It's fantastic. It's super high quality. It's really, really good. Uh, and it's, it produces just so many wonderful papers. This particular paper is from Ivaldus Gierdauskas uh, at the University Hospital of Augsburg in in Germany and it took 8,000 uh, aortic valve regurgitation patients uh, to look in the analysis from the Gary database. Uh, these were uh, done 
from uh, from this database and uh, and out of it an amazingly high number were repaired 2,329% of these patients were repaired versus 5,700 uh, replaced now remember these are regurgitation patients they're not suitable for TAVA uh, and it, they just had these two methods uh, repair or replacement um, and uh, and they looked at the one-year survival uh, so the one-year survival, amazingly, uh, was for repair, it was 97.7% and replacement uh, was 96, so replacement was 96%. So, so that is uh, a percent difference in a very big database. They then took a load of matched pairs uh, to try and really flatten the, um, the playing field as much as possible, did Cox regression for age and everything else, uh, and showed again there was a, a cardiac event-free survival at one year. 85% um, in the repair group and 81 percent in the replacement group now it's kind of interesting isn't it um it couldn't be that the valve is failing more in the replacement group than the repair group so there can't be surely a difference between the actual hemodynamics of the repair versus the replacement groups at one year it couldn't possibly be true so what could be happening here in germany well my thoughts and uh, and and uh, you know prepare to shoot me down but uh, my thoughts are that german germany is you know one of the paramount uh, aortic repair places in the world uh, they've got some tremendously good repair surgeons uh, hans schaefer's amongst others that he has taught and so i'm wondering whether perhaps uh, their propensity modeling which is age sex sds score did not account fully for the quality of the surgeons and that actually aortic valve repair is in itself a quality marker of a good quality surgeon because the very very good technical surgeon will do repair much more confidently than the less confident maybe less experienced surgeon so i think probably this is actually more of a reflection of the surgeons doing the operation than the repair versus replacement but it still means they're getting great one-year results and they're doing a lot um, and these were young people mean age 51 this was from 2011 to 2015 so you know they're, they're lasting well and doing a surprising amount 30 percent uh, in germany so those are my thoughts um i can't see how how uh, the difference in mortality could be explained by rep replacement being worse, the actual valve. So that is my only explanation. The second paper we have for you uh, was by Francois Lacour Gaillette uh, in France. And interestingly, um, this has actually been uh, published in the European Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery uh, from a charity, the Fondation. Mécénat uh, Chirurgie Cardiaque um, and I would encourage you to go and look at their website as they are a fascinating uh, group of surgeons. Now the title of this um, paper is multi-center study on late outcomes of biventricular repair of double outlet right ventricle and the paper itself seeks to show that you can get pretty good outcomes with double outlet repair of right ventricle and they got a 86% one-year survival and they looked at uh, things that affected survival and they found that um, that actually it was a bit better if you had a simple double outlet right ventricle with a committed VSD versus a complex double outlet right ventricle with a non-committed VSD. Now, 
Is that interesting? Well, to me, the most interesting thing about this article is this group, the Fondation Menecat Chirurgie Cardiaque, uh, because if you go and look on their website, they're this amazing group of, of centres. They've got 11 French hospitals and two Swiss hospitals in Angers, in Bordeaux, Geneva, Lausanne, Lyon, Marseille, Nantes, Paris, uh, Strasbourg, Toulouse, Tours and Lille. And these paediatric centres um, specialise in taking children children from developing world countries, bringing them over to their 12 centres uh, and performing their paediatric heart surgery in the developed world uh, and then getting them back. 4,500 children have been treated in this way since 1996. The average cost of a patient was 12,000 euros uh, and uh, and they, when you look on the website you actually find out more really fascinating things that they actually pair up the families of these children children with local people so they stay with them and stay local until their child is fixed uh, in Switzerland they've actually got a place for them to stay specially but this looks like a wonderful uh, brilliant charity working really hard for people uh, in the developing world and actually this is amazing we often talk about trying to get missions out to the developing world and how difficult they are and how low volume they end up being you know a mission will do 15 20 people and go out twice a year and here's a group that's done 4,000 500 children by bringing them over uh, to high volume, therefore cheaper centres. So I thought this was brilliant. Great job. Francois Lecour Gayette obviously requires no introduction. He's an amazing surgeon, and congratulations to that group. The third article is also fascinating, a thoracic article. Uh, this was uh, led by Alessandro Brunelli from uh, Leeds in the UK, but also with Herbert Decaluva, uh, Michael Gonzalez, Dominic Gusso, René Horsleben, uh, Peterson, uh, and uh, obviously the gods of thoracic surgery. Uh, and they did this survey for the ESTS. The title of it is What Extent of Surgical Resection Would a Thoracic Surgeon Choose If They Were Diagnosed with an Early Stage Lung Cancer? Uh, I think I got this one on a survey monkey uh, a little while ago uh, and in our email we got a survey and basically asked us a lot of questions it asked us to imagine having a 1.5 centimeter solid tumor uh, and what you would like done with it um, they actually got a really good response rate they got 123 surgeons from from um, from about uh, 32 countries uh, to reply a really good return and uh, all the surgeons said they'd have surgery. Nobody said uh, they would go off for radiotherapy, which was a relief. Um, interestingly, people were not that fixated on the approach. Uh, VATS versus RATS versus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 ports, uh, or even versus open. But a lot of surgeons did say they would just trust the best surgeon to do the thing they were most familiar with, which I really liked. Um, I thought that was great. Um, and then looking at uh, this uh, survey, it was interesting because uh, surgeons generally sort of were voting for segmentectomies when they were easy, but actually if they were a little bit difficult, uh, a lot of surgeons were voting for lobectomy. So for example, if your 1.5 centimetre lesion was in the right upper lobe apex, most surgeons, 55% said, ah, just have a lobectomy. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting, versus it being uh, in a much easier segment, like a segment six, uh, only 30% said they'd have a lobectomy if it was there. But then they then they uh, move things. Also, very interestingly, very few surgeons said they'd have a wedge resection. So, you know, 2%, 1%. So everyone was saying, 
either lobectomy or segmentectomy, but a surprising amount of surgeons were still going, oh, just go for a lobectomy. Um, and most surgeons regarded themselves as quite fit, by the way, because it was them as a person. Um, Interesting. Also, uh, they were asked uh, nodal sampling or lobe-specific lymph nodes or radical lymph nodes. And everybody was voting for radical lymph node dissection, basically on the basis of why not? Why do you want to miss out lymph nodes? I want to know my lymph node status. 72% of people were saying in a solid tumour, radical lymph node dissection. Um, if you upped or downed the size of the lesion, then if you made the lesion smaller, a few more people voted for segments, not many more people for wedges. Uh, and if you up the size, then everybody just went for lobectomy. 2.2 centimetres, you know, a lot of people were going uh, for lobectomy. So that was really interesting, uh, I thought. Great job, guys. Uh, really nice survey, really thoughtful. Um, surveys aren't the answer to all sorts of things, but actually opinions of surgeons uh, as we uh, read the the evidence from JCOG and CalGB showing equivalence, I think it's really good to test and dip your toe in the water of what's going on out there. We have got three great videos for you this week. Uh, the first one you're really going to like if you're an aortic surgeon. Uh, this is from the Italian hospital in Buenos Aires and I really encourage you to watch this even though, even if you're not an arch surgeon, because they have beautifully illustrated this and annotated it and, and really showed, done a great job of showing you exactly how to do um, an aortic, a total arch replacement with a frozen elephant trunk. They, they present the case <coughs> of a young person as a really nasty, sorry, 58 years old, that's young to me, 58-year-old um, person, started off as a type B dissection, but they do a big 3D reconstruction of all the dissection flaps going all the way into the iliacs, going into the renals, uh, look really horrible, and then it started tearing back uh, into zone zero, and so um, they show that CT reconstruction, they've got a lovely, very stable camera at the top of the uh, patient as they go for the intraoperative view, they show auxiliary cannulation, and then they show uh, the use of the Evita Open Neo uh, being deployed, uh, cool down, switch off, uh, deploy it down the descending aorta, and then uh, suture the distal aorta with a nice, uh, a nice buttress suturing. Uh, and then it's got three uh, little tubes attached to this really interesting. Um, graft uh, to put to the head and neck vessels. It's got a fourth for the perfusion, distal perfusion. And then you can do the proximal anastomosis and it looked really, really nice. Total, total circulatory arrest time was uh, 50 minutes in this patient. They did really, really well and it looks like a great solution for somebody with a horrible uh, dissection like this. Great job, guys. Really nice. The second video we've got for you is a fascinating and wonderful interview by Emily Farkas with Sherry Uckman. Um, and... Um, and this, uh, this really was uh, a brilliant uh, interview with Sherry because Sherry actually uh, did an amazing survey of pay disparities uh, across the gender for the STS. And uh, we talked a bit about this um, last week in our, in our podcast, but basically a new starting cardiothoracic uh, attending will only earn 80 cents for every $1 that a male surgeon will uh, earn. Also, there's loads of other horrible findings they are discovering, like doubling uh, the uh, miscarriage rate of someone uh, who's pregnant while being a surgeon, uh, not taking time off if they're miscarriage. Just the most awful things they've uncovered. But the great thing uh, is that they are doing something about it. And Sherry Ekman also in this video highlights what the STS is going to do about this. And I think
think essentially the STS is going to become a leader uh, in this field, I hope, uh, to try and fight for complete pay parity and, uh, and equity in in paying conditions. So well done. Um, definitely have a look at that uh, video. You know, it was a shock to me. Uh, I don't believe we have those disparities in the UK. I have no idea if we have those disparities across Europe and other places around the world. Maybe you could tell me. But it was a wonderful interview. And thank you, Sherry. And thank you so much, Emily Farkas, for doing such a good job of that interview. And the third video we have for you today is a bit of a rarity for us thoracic surgeons. It's an open case. Oh my gosh, do they still exist? Uh, well, of course they do. And uh, brilliantly, uh, these guys did a great job. So, so Harish Kumar and Nandini Vineshwar uh, did a great job of this wonderful video of a left upper lobe total lung sparing sleeve resection. Uh, it was really good. They called it a left secondary carinal resection um, and reconstruction with intercostal flap. They again do a beautiful illustration job showing every single part of a, a total lung sparing sleeve resection and explained brilliantly. They've got the bronchoscopic views and they've actually got a really, really good intraoperative view. First of all, they, they, they open the fissure, they expose the pulmonary artery and retract it upwards, they expose the superior and inferior pulmonary vein, they expose the left main stem bronchus, they expose the upper lobe and the lower lobe bronchus, separating it all out in the fissure, and they get a knife and they cut the upper lobe bronchus, the lower lobe bronchus, and the left main stem bronchus, and then they show us uh, the carcinoid tumour right on that secondary carina, uh, and then they beautifully show us the interrupted 4-0 um, suture technique for putting these two together. First of all, putting the upper and lower lobe bronchi together to create a new secondary uh, carina uh, and then putting that on the left main bronchus. Uh, they cut the lingual artery, but that's about it. So this patient loses no lung. Uh, and you know what? I'd much rather have a thoracotomy and lose no lung than have a uh, maybe a robotic or VATS operation, but lose a lobe. So, so if these people uh, knew this was the only way to do it, absolutely good on you guys. Really nice video. Have a good look at that. If you're ever going to be doing it, look at this video before you go there. And they put an intercostal flap around it just for protection and improvement of healing, which I really liked as well. We don't see intercostal flaps very much these days because obviously a lot of us are minimally invasive. You can actually uh, harvest them minimally invasively. Uh, it's not very popular, but it is very, very possible. And, you know, especially in the era of chemo immunotherapy, um, maybe we should be doing this a lot more. Well, I've been honking on for hours, haven't I? So it's been a particularly long podcast, but I'll just let you know about a few upcoming events. There's a Fundamentals in Congenital Heart Disease uh, online course, Wednesday, 6th of March. There's an EACTS uh, Aortic Annular Enlargement webinar uh, with uh, none other than Bo Yang. That's a not-to-miss one, uh, March the 8th, I think the very best way to enlarge an annulus. Uh, so check that out. And the General Thoracic Surgery Club has its 36th annual meeting on March the 14th to the 17th. And finally, I haven't checked in much with Diego Gonzalez Rivas, the most amazing thoracic world traveling surgeon we've ever known. He's been in Rome doing some incredible things. He's been on his website doing left upper lobe double sleeve resections, and he's just posted a video of his of his uh, travels so far to at least five different countries. So well done, Diego. Keep the flag flying, and we might even see you in June in Ghana and Accra that he might be taking a lorry there to do some surgery. 
surgery. Find out more about that in future podcasts. And thank you so much for watching to the end. Um, my name is Joel Dunning. Uh, we are here every week bringing you all the most interesting news and views from around the world and some interesting topics. Thank you very much. Thank you.